arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Did I ever hang out or know any mobsters? No, 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 no. But I did know someone who held up their station wagon's bench seat with a 2x4 as Bum Bumpus did in his car. I know it sounds crazy, but this is not a joke. Let's go to Boston later to Club Max with Jones and Franny. Here's episode two of Johnny's Back in Town by Robert P. Fitton beginning now. Johnny's Back in Town, chapter three. Club Max, 45 Front Street, Prince William, New Hampshire. Saturday morning, January 10th, 6.35 a.m. He sensed warm, smooth fingers moving down his cheeks, and the air was laced with a sexy perfume. A sultry female voice whispered in his ear, Jonesy, rise and shine. Jones slowly opened his eyes as a tall brunette with pinned up hair and stunning green eyes came into view. She wore black leather pants with boots and a loose fitting white lace top. Her perfume mixed with the Big Mama's coffee. She held a tray with the coffee and fresh donuts. Who are you? asked Jones. I'm Silky. I bet you are, said Jones as he sat up touching his cheek. She nestled her way onto the couch. Coco wanted me to open up the club and take care of you. That conjured up several scenarios in Jones's mind. The primary one being Franny finding out that he was on the sofa with this sex pot. Thanks, I appreciate it. She popped the tab on the coffee. Anytime, coach. Where's Coco? Silky shrugged her shoulders and handed the warm coffee cup to Jones. Jones sipped the coffee as she stared at him and smiled. Coco said you like it, light and sweet. Oh, he did, did he? Silky held a vanilla cream donut. You mind if I nibble? Go right ahead, said Jones as he wiggled away from the leather pants. Then he grabbed his phone off the coffee table and hit Coco's number. He was bothered by what he and Coco had found last night in the elevator shaft. Even though it was just Coco's theory, he could hear Bill Jones's voice in his head, reminding him that he could be withholding evidence. If it really was evidence. When you nibble, it lasts longer said Silky. You're right, Silky. Hey, Jonesy, how's things? Asked Coco on the phone. How's things? He asked as Silky stretched the top tightly against her chest. Things are wonderful. Silky produced a perfect smile and her green eyes sparkled. Glad to accommodate. Are you on your way over? Asked Jones, taking another sip of coffee. I'm in the vet and the engine sounds like Dulio's old lawnmower. It's got to be that yo-yo gas. Not good. I'll be at the club in 10 minutes if the vet makes it. Coco, we need to call Phillips about the elevator shaft. We'll talk about that on the way to Boston. Well, get the Beamer. Dulio has the Beamer. He likes to grocery shop early with Reader at Delmonico's. Thanks for the wake up, he said as Silky smiled at him. Don't mention it. Jones slipped the phone into his pocket. Silky, you can have the donuts. When she stood, she was almost as tall as Jones, but proportioned quite differently. I wouldn't want to ruin my figure. Don't think you have to worry about that. That's nice of you to say, Jonesy. She ran her index finger under his chin. Coco says you come over the club quite a bit. She took out a gray card with one name, Silky, in red letters from her pocket and gave it to Jones. 
You look me up if you need any more special deliveries. Joan stared at her name in large raised letters. Right. Have a great day, Jonesy. She kissed his cheek and turned like a model on the runway as she strutted from Coco's office. Mercy. I'm going with you, Coco, because I want to know what's going on, said Jones. That doesn't mean you're going to find out. Charlie makes the call, not you, not me. Jones set down his phone. Kevin Phillips was not answering. Coco flicked his fingers along Jones's cheek. Hey, see you met Silky. Coco, I'm engaged. Jonesy, everybody knows you're marrying Franny and June. Loosen up, will you? The woman was, was, yeah, I know what she was, said Coco, grinning as he downshifted, but the engine was running rough up the ramp to the highway. I know what you're going to say, Coco. You always say it about your girls. She's a good kid. She is. Just don't let it get back to Franny. Relax, will you? You can stop by wiping that smooch off your cheek, said Coco, pulling out a tissue. Jones's eyes popped. My cheek? Yeah. Coco moved his thumb against his index finger as if he were flapping his lips. Then Jones broke into laughter as they moved on to the interstate. He wiped his cheek and Coco opened the divider with a small wastebasket. You think Charlie knows about the alleged hit on Chet? asked Jones. Drop the alleged, said Coco. It was a hit. Look, this whole thing is bordering on illegal. Kevin needs to know about the elevator, and he's gone silent. Maybe he's figured it out, Jonesy. Phillips is the only bright bulb on the force. Incredible what that hitman did. Let me take it a step further, Jonesy. The elevator shaft is a theory. I think I'm right. Coco checked his watch and accelerated south toward Massachusetts. Either way, the shooter is long gone. Wrong, bro. McLaughlin's still alive this morning. Bruno told me the cops have a detail at Prince William Medical. You don't collect on that contract with McLaughlin alive. Coco's phone rang. He looked down at the screen and then picked up the phone. Yeah, Bruno. Winky? Well, put him on, Bruno. Coco shook his head as he waited for Winky. Then he listened. What the hell, Winky? Right. Driscoll? Okay, where is he now? Well, what did he say? Yeah, you can give him the treatment any way you want. I'll talk to you. Coco's eyes darted. Then he hung up. What's the matter, Coco? Driscoll is walking around and talking about my old man. Not in so many words. We'll see how Big Mouth Rodent does when he breaks down somewhere in Timbuktu, courtesy of Winky. Jones panned the Boston skyline from the northeast across the pewter smooth Charles River. The clouds were just clearing. He again tried calling Kevin Phillips, but the call went into voicemail. Why isn't he answering my calls? Jones shook his head, but bothering him more was Charlie DePiro's connection to Chet McLaughlin. During the ride down to Boston, Coco had not said anything about the connection or the phone call to Winky. Coco raced the vet with its sputtering engine under the girders of the Tobin Bridge in Boston. The vet's engine stalled and Coco had to restart the car in neutral as they rolled along. Jones had his phone on silent. The caller ID flashed an unknown number. I never know whether to answer an unknown number. I always answer, Jonesy. You never know if the caller's gonna be female. Yeah, with my luck, it would be Stephanie. Didn't she finally get married? Jones nodded. Matthias Jones. Matthias! Jones recognized the modulating voice of the new dean of students. Phil Curran here. 
damn, whispered Jones. He rolled his eyes. And how are you this morning, Phil? Well, not too good. Your other half is here helping me set up, but I was hoping you would be stepping aboard. I have a meeting, Phil. Well, not very good for the college to have some ruckus over in a bowling alley. The shooting last night has nothing to do with the college, Phil, or me. I need a detailed report on the incident, said Phil. And I had a courier run over a gaggle of tickets to your office for my gala. I don't want any ticket unsold. Hey, Phil, I'm not writing a report for you. And what the hell are you selling tickets for some party for yourself? See ya. Jones slammed down the phone on his knee. I hate that guy. I wish Nigel had never retired. Coco moved down the far side of the bridge near Boston Garden and the tunnel under the city. Jonesy, it's pretty obvious about current. What do you mean? This clown is a successful fundraiser. The old man wanted cash to expand the college. That's why he brought him in for his friend. I'll quit before I play ticket boy to this guy, said Jones. I told you, we can put some pressure on him, said Coco with a half grin. Yeah, right. Seriously, Jonesy, if you want this moron out, we'll get him out. Wouldn't break my heart. PJ wants to nix Charlie's influence with the college. Let me tell you something about Charlie. He likes supporting the college. PJ's wife, Joni, she's one of them goody two-shoes. I'm glad he was halfway around the world. Right. You and me and Bentley are the only ones who knew he was in Fiji. He should be back late tonight. I just want to win ball games, said Jones as he dialed Woozy. Woozy. Don't. Murphy's gonna play. He's just cleared by Dr. Yang at PW Medical this morning. Murphy kept calling him. Finally, some good news. I hear Chet McLaughlin isn't doing too well. You see the shooting? Yeah, we'll talk about it later, Woozy. One of the students brought over a roll of tickets from Phil Curran. Jones pinched the bridge of his nose. I know. Seventy-five bucks to go to an off-campus party? Asked Woozy. Woozy, take those tickets and throw them in the trash. My pleasure. Curran is an ass. Good. We're on the same page. I'll be at the gym afternoon. Bye. Jones turned to Coco as he held his phone. What? Jones smiled. You're the man, Jonesy. Jones and Coco exited the elevator on the 22nd floor of the old Hancock building. The sun brightened the Charles River and the Harvard Bridge in the distance. Charlie, in his gray vest and white shirt, sat at a wide walnut desk behind glass doors. He signed a few papers from his strawberry blonde secretary and then waved Jones and Coco to the front desk. Charlie extended his hand to Jones. Hey, I heard about your engagement, Jonesy. Thanks, Charlie. Wedding at June in St. Bart's and Prince William. I'd like to have you there, Charlie, after what you did for Franny. Let me RSVP right now. We weren't going to let Albert leverage Franny as a hostage. The only hostage now is Albert. He's in for 25 years, he said, chuckling. <laughs> Can I get you boys some coffee? Coffee would be good, Charlie. Thanks, said Coco. Diane, two coffees. Jones likes his coffee light and sweet. Coco's black. The strawberry blonde Diane nodded from the doorway. She flashed her bright blue eyes at Jones. Charlie again focused on Coco and Jones. Thanks for coming down right away. It was a late night, said Jones, but now it's day. I just talked to the Prince William Medical Center. Chetty McLaughlin is clinging to life. 
Jones wondered why Charlie referred to Chet as Chetty. Diane walked in with the coffees. Jonesy, give me a minute with cocoa, will you? Sure. Diane handed the warm mug to Jones. Jones sipped the coffee. We'll be right out. We just have to get a few things straight. This whole thing is bizarre, said Jones. Right, Diane, no calls. You got it, Charlie. Charlie and Coco entered the inner office as the heavy door closed. Jones sat on the sofa overlooking the distant traffic on both sides of the Charles River. He tapped his fingers on the sofa arm as he tried to figure out what Charlie and Coco were not telling him. Diane popped out of the side office around 15 minutes later. Refill there, Jonesy? Uh, I'm all set, thank you. So, you coach college ball, she asked. Hamilton, north of Prince William in New Hampshire. Good job? Yeah, it's a good job. I like it up there. I met a local girl. We're getting married in June. Inside Charlie's office, Charlie, Coco started yelling about x-rays, and then Johnny Stefani's name was bantered around. And then Jones heard Charlie trying to calm him down. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Your family must be happy. I have an aunt, Aunt May, from Indiana. She'll be here for the wedding. The office door opened, and Coco stormed out. Charlie walked out slowly behind him. Coco was soon at the outer door. Come on, Jonesy. What's the matter? Coco moved into the corridor. Charlie held Jones's wrist. Let him cool down, Jonesy. Just let it go. He's your close friend. We need more information. This will pass. Coco will fill you in. Stand by him. Jones was even more confused. I will, but I know you will. You have my cell number. I do. Good man said Charlie, cupping his hand on Jones's shoulder. We'll get to the bottom of this. Charlie squeezed Jones's hand and Jones retreated outside the office. Coco at the elevator kept punching the button. The elevator pinged and they walked inside. With a serious face, he repeatedly looked downward. Jonesy, there's a lot more to this and it involves my old man. And nobody really knows what the hell is going on here. Jones nodded. We gotta be careful. Johnny's Back in Town, Chapter 4, Route 93 North, Atherton, Massachusetts, January 10th, 9.55 a.m. As they left Boston and headed north, Jones had never seen Coco so quiet. With the radio off but the engine acting up, Jones stared out the window at the apartment complexes along the highway north of Boston. Jones was anxious to find out what had transpired in Charlie's office. His phone rang as they raced up the straight stretch of highway toward New Hampshire. The carrot topped Gallagher's photo in front of the stone edifice of St. Bart's Church flashed on the screen. Jim, I was trying to get a hold of you. Is Chet? Chet is in rough shape. Out of the corner of his eye, Jones saw Coco staring. He was hit by what Dom calls a dum-dum bullet. Hit part of his liver, bottom of his lungs and heart. He's lost a lot of blood. They don't expect him to survive. Claire is by his bedside. Wander is flying in from Minnesota. Have you talked to Dom or Kevin Phillips, Jim? Kevin isn't returning my calls. Kevin did speak with Dr. Yang last night. Just a general statement about how they would have more state police and FBI on site this morning. Then they have no idea who did this. Asked Jones, wondering about the professional hit. Not at this point. They're performing ballistics. I honestly don't know how many shots I heard, Matthias. Jim, have Kevin call me if you see him. I have that game with Hudson. Keep me informed. Let Claire and Wanda know our prayers are with them. 
I'll try and get over to the hospital. Talk to you later. Coco accelerated when Jones hung up. Something bothered him about the shots. There had to be two shooters, and one of them was Pereira. Two shooters for this one guy who was a model citizen and presently did the books at St. Bart's and taught accounting at the college. And then there was the nebulous link to Charlie DePiro. He turned to Coco. When Bucky used the men's room, he saw two guys, one with a dark mustache and another with a scar over his left eye, who you say could be your father. The rodent may be right for the first time in his life. Did you know they were in the restroom area? Asked Jones, and why was Bum up there? I didn't know nothing. I was in the front office. I haven't seen my old man for years. Coco then gazed up the highway as they headed toward the New Hampshire line. He spoke around five minutes later. Phillips told me about the guy with the scar down his eye, according to Driscoll, your father. Well, it looks that way. Trusting Driscoll makes me more nervous. Why would your father be at the Bolarama during an obvious hit job? Charlie said the same thing with slightly different language. He turned to Jones as he drove up the highway. Let me tell you something, Jonesy. I trust you, and Dulio, and a couple of other people in the world. Jones felt butterflies in his stomach. Thanks. I don't want this getting back to Charlie, at least not now. You don't have to tell me anything, Coco. I know that, Jonesy. Listen, just listen, will you? Okay. When he was in college, McLaughlin was, was working in the office. The afternoon things went down at the X-ray south of Boston. It was raining like hell. Around two o'clock, Jigsy Moran comes in before hours to have a drink. Who was he? It was no big deal, just a local stiff. Right. Charlie was 18 years old. He was the bouncer, but he wasn't doing the x-ray for another couple of hours. The new dancer, Heather, was trying out some routine for Dan Ruggles. He managed the x-ray. How does your father fit into this? Will you wait, Jonesy? I'm getting to that. Coco pulled out a cigarette as the car continued to run rough. He lit the cigarette and blew out the smoke. <sighs> Somewhere around 3.30, there's a knock at the door. Charlie told me it was unusual, because you could just walk into the x-ray, as they called it. The place was a dive. Okay. Danny gets suspicious because of what I just told you. He takes out his gun and asks who's there. A voice comes through the door. Johnny Stefani. It wasn't him, said Jones. A cigarette hung out of Coco's mouth on the window side. Now how the hell do you know that, Jonesy? Because nobody's stupid enough to give their name if what I think is going to happen happens. Right. Dan opens the door. The guy's standing there under the canopy. He's wearing a fedora, my old man's trademark. And the two guys with him are packing 38s. He's holding an old-fashioned machine gun from the 30s and tells Dandy to drop his gun which Danny immediately does, I might add. The two side guys keep calling the machine gun guy Johnny way too many times. Jones looked ahead to the New Hampshire welcome sign. We just entered New Hampshire. Yeah, so what? Listen, he informs Heather that her services are no longer needed and to scram. By the way, she's been dead for 15 years. And then he pushes Danny to the side door with the barrel of the machine gun. He tells them both not to leave in their cars, so they walk into the rain. What about the guy at the bar? Oh, Jigsy wanted to get out. The guy with the gun lets Jigsy finish his drink, then he mows him down. What about Chet? asked Jones. 
No fool he. Chet hid in the stripper's room. In the closet with all the costumes. Yeah. You see the setup there, Jonesy? Danny and Heather. They go to visit Norm Pelletier in Quincy, Massachusetts. Not far away. Jigsy was his brother-in-law. Pelletier ran southern New Hampshire, eastern Mass to the Connecticut border. You see, my old man was about to be second in command at Pelletier. Could have gone even further. Jigsy was a nobody, but he was married to Pelletier's sister, Rose. Somebody spread phony info around later that he had something on Johnny. I get it. My old man had an alibi. He was with some bimbo. Dom Fiore, Albert's brother, pretended to be my old man. Pelletier liked my old man and didn't really care about Jigsy. But he couldn't let the murder stand. Johnny went to Vegas with his buddy Clyde. Cops were going to arrest my old man, but he was protected out there. Albert Fiore eventually became Charlie's second in command. My old man stayed in Vegas to get protected after all this, not just from the cops, but from Fiore's men. He moved his way up in Vegas. And so did Fiore. Exactly. Does Rita know any of this? Jonesy, I have no idea. I'm more concerned about McLaughlin. How the hell did word leak out that McLaughlin was at the X that afternoon? It's impossible. He has to be connected to Don Fiore, but Fiore's in Chicago. Your father wouldn't be standing in the restroom of the Bolarama within 50 feet of a man he hired to kill Chet. That's dumb. Right. He would have remained in Vegas till word came that the job was completed. Unless... Unless what? asked Coco. Unless someone was looking into that Moran murder after all these years. Coco spoke in a lower voice. Someone jump-started suspicion of my old man. What if you really did kill Jigsy? asked Jones. Oh, I hear you, Jonesy. Charlie says my old man didn't do it. Could be someone in Vegas who knew the story. Well, that makes sense. Or maybe somebody back here was told to bring it up, or maybe Dom himself. Who knew the truth, Coco? Chet. What about Charlie? asked Jones. Second hand from Chet. See, when Chet was hiding, he heard them call the guy in the fedora, Dom. The two other guys were told to bury Jigsy under the railroad tracks. And they mentioned my old man being with Judy Campos and Everett, not the boss. Is she dead? Yeah. Johnny left and she was never seen again. So, he has no alibi and he's innocent, said Jones. Ah, hold your horses. We're dealing with my old man here. He made a living out of scamming people. That's what I was talking to Charlie about. Jones closed his eyes and pinched the bridge of his nose. Keep coming back to the fact that he never would have been there if he knew Chet was about to be murdered. He and Clyde probably were there. I say Chet heard it was Dom Fiore who came into the x-ray, and now Chet is close to death. How did that information get to whoever set up the hit? Whoever McLaughlin told the story to, whoever told other people, ain't gonna figure that out, Jonesy. McLaughlin got the hell away from bookkeeping for Pelletier and went off on his career. I can take a page out of my father's playbook, said Jones. Maybe this has nothing to do with these theories. Maybe it's just something else completely. Coco was right. Phillips was a smart detective, and later that morning, he outlined everything Coco and Jones had seen in the old elevator shaft last night. And he even found a slot cut out from behind one of the bowling shoe racks. 
The wood from the slot could easily be removed and then put back in place with a nifty brass handle that had been attached on its back. The brass was white clean. No prints. Just the way Coco theorized. But as smart as Phillips was, he never traced the route under the promenade back to Coco's office. Now we're going to do DNA testing, said Phillips. Coco's eyes opened wide at Jones. I'm familiar with that shaft you're talking about, said Coco, effectively playing dumb. We had no use for that area when we remodeled. How far up from the basement is the slot? asked Jones. Seventeen feet even, replied Phillips as he led them toward the game room stairs. We're also checking the men's room forensically with like a swab of your mouth, Coco. You really think one of the dudes in the foyer was my old man? We'll find out. What concerns me is Bumpus, said Phillips as he descended the stairs ahead of them near the Washburn Ave door. Why was Bump so compelled to play craps when he was supposed to be at the front desk? Maybe he was hiding from somebody, said Jones. You don't get it, Phillips. The guy is a moron. No argument here. He stopped in front of the storage room doorway. Inside was a group of forensics people, ladders up through the completely open ceiling, and halogen lights brightening the shaft. Incredible said Jones, not wanting to elaborate. Phillips faced Jones and Coco, and I find it hard to believe that Bum and his wife were wearing earbuds tied into country music when the shots were fired. Too convenient. By the way, the other shot came from a 22, taken out of the wall by the mural. The gun that shot Mr. McLaughlin was a 44 with a hollow point bullet. Well, that's screwy as hell, said Coco. Probably a diversion with the 22. The ladder he secured had to be flexible for folding up, said Phillips. How would you have killed Mr. McLaughlin, Coco? Coco remained cool. I wouldn't have. I would have put out a contract, he said, looking up. This is genius. Phillips stared at Coco for a few seconds. Then he turned to Jones. If this was a hitman, how would you catch him, Matthias? I'd want to know how he got in and out. Phillips nodded. Bum claims he never saw anyone suspicious around the Bolarama, yet whoever climbed out of the shaft would need a key to get into this area in the first place. There's space under the first floor, but no way out. Just cobwebs. Jones was impressed Phillips had been under the promenade. At least he didn't find the stairs to Coco's office. Dom and I think he left right away. Because of the lights going out. Maybe, but that door to Washburn was locked inside and out said Phillips. Maybe it wasn't supposed to be. No, said Coco. We lock it to keep people from sneaking in and out of the Bolarama. I know. Krim talked to Henry Elkins. You mean Winky? asked Coco. Phillips smiled. Right. You sent him outside. Why? Just to check that no one was parking out there. That's when he saw the Escalade. He told me he removed the tape off the latch. We located it in the trash next to the desk. Forensics have that, too. Let's get back upstairs. Phillips had only gone a few stairs when he spoke again. Heard you were in Boston today. Yeah, I saw Charlie DePiro because of what Driscoll said. The description matched my old man. He passed the Warburton Ave door and climbed into the game room. Well, what exactly did Charlie say? He said he had the word that my old man was back east. Nothing more? He wondered, and so do I, Phillips. Why, Johnny Stefani would be here during a hit. Nobody understands this. 
It has to be something else, said Jones. Jones spotted Pinky Harris, as well as Tom McGill, walking along the promenade. Something concurrent. Right, but what in the world could have nothing to do with McLaughlin? Yet Johnny Stefani was standing in the restroom door with nothing to do with the shooting. Jones recalled Coco's revelation about what happened in the X-ray club. He struggled to think why Johnny would take out Chet so many years later. Tom McGill, with a press badge from the Hamilton Enterprise, waved as he approached. Tom, McGill looked to his left. Coco looks upset. Jones clamped his mouth, cautioning himself not to speak about what went on in Charlie DePiro's office. Coco has a 70% ownership in this place. You know there are 270 witnesses to what happened last night? What did you hear? Two shots within a half seconds. Two different sounds, a whoosh and then a pop. Matches up with the bullets, said McGill as he wrote down the information. Can I quote you, Matthias? Sure, go ahead. Jones held his shoulder briefly. Tom, is Chet still alive? Not for long, I'm afraid. McGill turned toward the offices across the bowling lane. Your friend, the FBI guy, Pearson, is here. Friend, Pearson hates my guts, said Jones, panning the alley. I'll stay away from him. Coco erupted in a tirade at the animated Pinky Harris by the front desk. I'm not talking to you, Pinky. I'm talking to Phillips. Listen, punk, said Pinky, and Kevin Phillips had to restrain Coco as he waved Pinky away. Coco and Phillips backed away from the counter to the game room. They don't come more arrogant than Pinky, said Jones. Oh, sure they do, said McGill, and Jones smiled for the first time in hours. Then he saw Special Agent Pearson emerge from the staircase downstairs. The FBI agent spotted Jones. Jones met the dark-haired Pearson, professionally clad in his shirt and tie, halfway. What are you doing here, Jones? I like to bowl, wise ass. Jones took a deep breath as Kevin Phillips waved Jones into the game room and Pearson followed. Coco lit a cigarette and leaned against one of the game machines. Okay. Two individuals in the men's room, said Pearson. We've been through all this, Pearson, said Coco. The guy with the scar could be my old man. How about why Bumpus was in there playing craps? You heard that kid by the supermarket, Coco, said Jones. Bum was being chased by a red pickup on Route 32. Maybe he was afraid somebody was after him. <laughs> well, where's the truck, Jonesy? I don't know. Hey, we're in charge here, Stefani growled Pearson. Why would Johnny Stefani be back on the East Coast? He lives and works in Vegas. Your guess is as good as mine. I haven't seen my old man in years. Get yourself a lawyer, said Pearson. I told Phillips yesterday I don't need no lawyer. I've had no contact with the old man, nothing. Funny he's right here in a place you invested in. Coco shook his head and then took a drag on the cigarette. My old man ain't one of my favorites. Okay, Pearson, got it? I need an official statement. You just got it. Phillips walked in front of Pearson. This morning we found a sliding piece of wood in the slots, in the shoe slots, number 720. Is there any way you can contact your father or anyone around him, Coco? Asked Pearson. Not gonna happen, pal. What about your mother? You leave my mother out of this, shouted Coco. My mother don't know where he is. He left us with nothing and started over in Vegas. He's a hoodlum, said Pearson. Shut up, 
said Coco. He deserted you, Johnny Jr., said Pearson as he laughed. Ha, ha, ha. Coco lunged and Jones dived to his left as if he were throwing a body block downfield. His right sneaker whacked Pearson in the crotch. As Pearson rolled over in pain, Phillips pulled Jones to his feet and escorted Coco and Jones to the main promenade. He faced the two of them in front of the coat room. Several times, Jones tried not to laugh. Coco smiled and turned. What do you got to say for yourself, Matthias? asked Phillips. Then Phillips fully smiled. I'll have to remember that block next time for my special teams. <laughs> Who said Pearson has no Jones's phone ring? Saved by the bell. What do you mean by that? Asked Phil Curran in a pompous reply. Hey, Phil, I'm over the Bolarama and I'm really busy, said Jones. I hope I didn't hear what I just thought I heard. Listen, I don't take orders from you, Phil, said Jones as Coco turned. Jones stepped into the coat room. You are forbidden to be involved in the McLaughlin case. You're a big man with PJ on vacation. Hmm, I can't seem to reach him. He said he was going to Austria. Jones smiled at the erroneous story. Right, just don't bother me anymore, Phil. Bother you? I'm writing up a complaint to be filed with the school trustees. Dereliction of duty of your job as coach. I'll set up the meeting. Jones hung up. Coco was in the doorway. One call, Jonesy, and that boomerang will be gone. Kevin Phillips, his selling hand, moved next to Coco. That Escalade is back in Revere, Massachusetts now, at a rental place, he said. But Wysocki never boarded the airlines, nor did Johnny Stefani. No video available. Just who is Wysocki? You let us worry about that, said Pinky Harris behind Phillips. We'll all be dead by the time that happens, said Jones, and Coco laughed. Shut up, Jones, said Pinky. None of them flew out on the airlines. Coco stepped away from the room, followed by Jones. Well, they ain't stupid, Pink Eye. Watch it, Coco. All right, let's just stop trying to get on each other's nerves, warned Phillips. Gentlemen, should there be any developments, keep your cell phones on. Oh, sure, now he wants the cell phones on, quipped Jones. With four hours left until the game, Coco dropped the vet at Ralphie's garage with instructions to fix the sputtering. Dulio was waiting with the Beamer. As Jones got inside, LG notified him that PJ had reached him on a distant line just before he boarded the plane for Hawaii. He had talked to PW Medical with John Raskin, the administrator, to get a medical update on Chet. He had also called Kevin Phillips. He was still planning on meeting at Fletcher Hill tomorrow. Coco thought it was a good idea that Dulio escort them to the medical center. When they entered the hospital, Bruno informed Coco on the phone that the Duas Trusts indeed owned the Yo-Yo franchise, but it was PJ who had bought the string of stations from the Massachusetts border to Maine. Jones and Coco stepped into the elevator behind Dulio. PJ doesn't need to be messing with the gas. It has to be Dewar's. Remember that old saying? What's that? asked Jones. Where there's Dewar's, there's Driscoll. Jones smiled, and Dulio slapped Coco's shoulder with his fingers. What's the matter, Dulio? Cafeteria. First floor on the right. I just went shopping for food. Rita told me to stay out of the grocery store. <laughs> I don't blame her. Jones faced Dulio. First floor, by radiology. Cafeteria is beyond radiology. Dulio rounded the stairway toward the cafeteria. 
Everything about this case seemed mixed up. Jones did not even have a side road theory. The doors opened and the pumpkin-faced Kip Bosco bit into a powdery donut as he turned. His bushy red mustache was now covered with white powder. You guys ain't coming in here. Don't go over the red line. What red line? asked Coco. What are you doing, Kip? asked Jones. You're a vice cop. I'm in charge here, Coachy. I have a specific order to protect... What are you blabbing about, Bozo? Per order of Herbert Lane, Coco, said Kip as he took another bite. Phillips just issued a warrant for the arrest of Mark Pierre from Prince William. Won't be the first time. I had to beat him up last week. Yeah, sure you did, said Coco. Where's Lane now? Conference room with Phillips, said Kip, pointing to the right. Lane is up here? Why is that screwball up here? Coco edged his way down the hall. Claire McLaughlin, in the same green slack she wore at the Bolarama, stepped from the room three doors down the hall. The immovable figure of Chet McLaughlin, minus his glasses and wrapped in white sheets, resembled the living dead. Claire grabbed onto Jones and continued weeping. Oh, coach, he's just not going to make it. He's just not going to make it. I'm so sorry, Claire. Kip, holding his gun handle, glared at her. Her lower lip quivered and she tightened her bloodshot eyes. Why, Chet? There are answers out there, said Jones in a softer voice. Her voice assumed an odd, reassuring tone. I know you can find those answers. She hugged Jones, glanced at the gawking Kip Bosco, and then dragged Jones over to the nearby supply closet. Wanda lands in Manchester this afternoon. I've told her about Pereira being seen in the alley. Chief Pacheco is sending two of his officers to bring her to PW Medical. And we have the two men from Paddington Security in Manchester. Pereira was seen in the Bolarama, said Jones. Lieutenant Phillips told me. He said they had police all over the hospital. He does. Jones winced as he caught sight of Bosco finishing the donut and licking his fingers. Chet ordered Pereira off the property. Well, I need to talk with Kevin Phillips, he said, looking down the corridor. They put out an all-points bulletin on Pereira. He looked at Kip Bosco. She hugged Jones again and returned to the room. Jones waved Kip Bosco over as Coco started up the corridor. What is it, Jones? You need to stay with Mrs. McLaughlin. Have some heart, will you? I don't take orders from you, Coachy. Coco grabbed the lapels of Kip's maroon blazer. You listen to me, Bozo. I don't know why the hell they have you up here, but if anything happens to that lady or Chet, you and your frosted donut won't be coming down for breakfast. Johnny's Back in Town, Chapter 5 Hamilton Fletcher Gymnasium, Hamilton College, Hamilton, New Hampshire, Saturday, January 10th, 8 p.m. Coco had dropped Jones off at his colonial on the common. He showered and ate sandwiches that Franny had wrapped on the counter. Then he headed over to the gym. Cold weather reduced the crowd size for the Hudson State game. Jones continued warming up the team with layups and passes to the basket. The rangy Murphy stuffed the ball into the basket. boy, Murph! Loosen up! Loosen up! With six minutes on the countdown clock, Jones heard Phil Curran's modulating voice outside the lobby. I want you to get me by here! 
Phil walked by Bucky Driscoll at the far end. To prevent one of Bucky's stunts, Jones had ordered Bucky not to leave the backboard area. Phil's voice was clear now. Jones closed his eyes and then briefly clapped his hands. Keep it speedy, boys. Keep it speedy. He looked over his shoulder. Phil, in his red vest, draped his gray tweed coat over his arm. He had a huge head with a sloping forehead and strands of hair covering his receding hairline. His round eyes looked out of alignment. What was that, coach? Asked Woozy, throwing the ball to Murphy, who again stuffed it in the basket. Get him, Murph! Then Woozy caught sight of Phil. Oh, no. Jones became unglued when Phil moved up the sidelines toward him. Oh, Coach Jones! What is it, Phil? growled Jones. How are the ticket sales going for my gala? Hard to sell tickets from the wastebasket, said Jones. Okay, boys, back to the bench. I hope you're joking, said Phil with an unusually quizzical expression. You heard me. I'm not your ticket boy. I can't believe my ears. We need to talk about this. Phil, said Jones, stepping up to the shorter man. He pointed his finger within inches of Phil's face. You listen to me, Phil, and you listen good. You don't sign my paycheck. Ah, I wonder who does, snapped Jones. My gala. I don't give a damn about your gala or anything else you're selling, said Jones. I'm here to win ball games, and that's what I intend to do. Now get the hell off my court. You're on thin ice, my friend. As soon as I set up a meeting, you'll be on your knees at Fletcher Hill. Bring it on, Phil. And how did you know Chet McLaughlin was shot last night? I have my contacts. Bucky, no comment. At that time, Cora Jefferson and her son Courtney waited to pass Phil on the sidelines. You heard him, you big doofus. Mother, Mr. Curran is the new dean of students. Okay, move it, Dean Doofus, cried Cora. And just who are you, lady? Grumbled Phil as he turned. Someone who's going to put you in a lot of pain in about two seconds. Phil stepped aside and stared at Courtney as he approached. She'll do it, too, said Courtney. Jones looked up at Franny in the stands and made a gesture about the sandwiches she had left at his house. She smiled and gave him the thumbs-up sign. Jones grinned. By now, Phil was on his cell and walking toward the lobby. Jones's phone buzzed, and he looked at the text from Coco. How to give it to that bag of wind, Jonesy. You saw the whole thing on the City Channel. Let him go whine to the trustees. When you beat Hudson, you and Franny can come over the club. Jones looked around for the camera. He gave a smile across the gym. For the first time since Chet's shooting, he felt somewhat relaxed. Let's go get him, Woozy, he said, giving a high five to his assistant coach. With Murph back in the lineup, the game quickly got away from Hudson. Murph's mother, Helen, a six-foot-tall African-American woman, joked with Jones as the team emerged from the locker room. And she complimented him on telling off Phil Curran because Phil had stalled scholarship money for Murph a few weeks ago. Jones handed his card to Helen. You call me if there's any more delay, Helen, please. Thank you, coach. And I'll call you if Dean Doofus gives us any grief. Jones returned to the bench. The third quarter started the way the game had started, and Hamilton was quickly up by 23 points. 
The lead hovered around 20 points deep into the fourth quarter. Hudson had called a timeout with two minutes left. Jones' cell buzzed as he stood in front of his players. Jones. Kevin, returning your call, Matthias. We've been reviewing surveillance tapes. Thanks for the return call, Kevin. You know that hard-ass Pearson had us locked down. The Bolarama had surveillance, asked Jones, as the buzzer started the game again. No. Mark Vieira has been physically spotted in five separate areas of the Prince William Medical Center. Claire, her sister, and the kids are at one of our safe places here in the city. Herrera is crazy to go after Chet. Then he's in on it. He was seen in an area directly under Mr. McLaughlin's room. And you have Kip Bosco watching Chet? Hell no. Kip is a big fat decoy and he doesn't even know it. We have 11 guys in the hospital, four on the third floor. Herrera is still in the facility of the parking lot. We'll apprehend him. Any red pickup? Nothing in the parking lot. Franny and I are heading to Club Max later to relax, Kevin. I'll call you. Got it. Over and out. Jones dropped the phone in his pocket and clapped his hands as the game began again. Even with Pereira and Prince William Medical, Jones doubted whether an argument over Chet's daughter would prompt Pereira to snipe and kill Chet in a public place. He had to be involved with the professional killer. Jones believed that the bowling event for charity was posted on social media for Friday night, January 9th at the Bowlerama. That would allow the killer to be in the right place at the right time. And it might give a time frame of when the shooting perch had been constructed. Franny sat at the shiny wood bar as Coco had Bruno set up the video playback of Jones's argument with Phil Curran on the sidelines. Hey, Jonesy, said Silky in a form-fitted, shimmering white dress. Franny spun around. So, you're a Silky that Matthias spoke about. Well, yeah, she said, looking surprised that Jones had told his fiancée about it. Thanks for getting coffee for Matthias. He had a long night, said Franny. It was a long night, she said, winking at Jones. In your dreams, honey, said Franny. I have to go. Nice to meet you, Francis. Franny, Silky performed her spunky walk. Give me a break. Should I get one of those dresses, Matthias? Sure. She elbowed him as Bruno moved behind the bar. Where's Coco, Bruno? Call to Vegas, said Bruno, grabbing the remote. Vegas? Jones raised his brow. That's interesting. Bruno grinned and activated the video on the wide screens. He froze it as Phil Curran entered the gym just before the second half. Dias, are you sure PJ isn't going to freak out when he gets back and finds you hammering Phil? Asked Franny. Freak out? He'll shake my hand. Jones lifted his beer mug. Coco said it was fundraising. Fundraising is why Phil was hired. That certainly wasn't his personality, said Franny as Jones fought, spitting out the beer. Coco walked quickly from his back office and headed for Jones. I just talked to Bosco. They think Pereira is stealing the Prince William Medical Complex. Phillips is searching all the rooms at PW Medical. They may move McLaughlin. His signs are slightly better. Not good, but better. I thought you were talking to Vegas. I was. Listen, nobody's seen my old man. I talked to the pit boss at the Speckled Bird in Vegas, Steve Freeman. My old man went out of town two weeks ago with Clyde Damon, his buddy. Right. Not as high up as the old man, but just as dangerous. Nobody knows where they went. 
Driscoll's description is right, they came back here. Why? Can you tell me, smart one? Jones stood and spoke in a low voice. I think Pereira is linked to the cure. Yeah, right. I think you know more, Coco. That's as much as I know, bro. Coco turned to the group. As you know, Coach Jones had his little TV reality show this evening during halftime of his ball game, which I might add that he won. Club at Hudson State. The club applauded Jones and Jones smiled, raising his hand. Run it, Bruno. pointed at Bruno and Bruno began the playback one more time. Jones turned to his left as Bum Bumpus, holding a huge clear glass stein of beer, hovered over him. Oh jeez, just won your hundredth game, huh coach? Said Bum. Bum knows all the stats, said Trixie who was behind him. I'm not in the mood, Bum. I got an information for you, said Bum, his gray beard stubble moving with his lips. That's nice, said Jones, about the red pickup. Out of sight, out of mind. Wonderful. Well, maybe I don't want to tell. Jones leaned toward the unshaven bum and stared into his milky blue eyes. A couple of weeks ago, somebody must have walked into the bowl of rammer and snuck around. And, and what? asked Franny. Stole the supply room closet key off my ring. How did they do that, bum? asked Jones. Unless you gave it to him, said Trixie. Just what did they look like, bum? said Jones. If I knew that, I would have called the cops, <laughs> he said laughing and his mouth opened wide. You know they wrote that song about Mr. Sandman, about Bum? That's ridiculous, said Jones. Oh yeah? Said Bum. You just listen to the beginning of that song. How many times they mention my name, Mississippi? Can you close your trap, Bum? Asked Jones. How could you let somebody steal a key off your ring? They were pros! Right, said Jones. Wait, you said something about they must have. So what? Snapped Bum, and he raised the beer mug to his lips. But what you're saying is, the key is gone. Bum tilted his head and looked confused. Did you let Phillips or Pearson know that, Bum? No, sir, I'm hiding out. From the red pickup guy. You're too smart for your own britches, Jones. If you have information, you should tell them. Thought you didn't believe me. Jones stared at his amateur clipped gray hair. Aren't you the private eye? No. Heard from Bucky Driscoll that that new dean is going to get you fired. Bucky told me that while he was pumping my gas at Yo-Yo. Franny set down her beer. How would he know that? Bucky has these psychic feelings, said Trixie. Wait a minute. Bucky is pumping gas at Yo-Yo? 
asked Jones. Manani and Walter can't be there. Look, bum, Arnie is watering down that gas. Arnie says the evaporation gives more steam power to the engine, said Trixie. My station wagon runs like a charm, said Bum. Is that why you're racing over the notch, Bum? asked Jones. I hold the record now. Jones grabbed the stein and set it on the bar. This shooting is serious business. Another day, another dollar. <laughs> said Bum, laughing like a kazoo stuck in his throat. Jones winced and pointed at him. What about that craps game? Tell me the truth. Who pulled you away from the desk? Whoa, boy, said Bum, opening his eyes. Then he gulped the rest of the beer. Me, I pulled me away from the desk. Bum don't know nothing, said Trixie. Yeah, you got the truth, said Franny under her breath. Bum won 700 bucks, said Trixie. Don't push me, Trixie, said Bum, pointing at her. Oh, these two guys, they came and hung out in the doorway. I told them I heard there was a craps game in the restroom. Sure you did, said Jones. The guy with the scar took my dice and told me to beat it. Then what? I told him nobody pushes Bum Bumpus around. Then he nods at the other guy. The other guy picks me up and throws me out on the carpet. Is that what happened, Trixie? What Bum says. I wanted to make money, gotta get my car fixed. Thought it ran like a charm, said Jones. Stay away from yo-yo gas, said Franny. Arnie gives me a discount. Yeah, while he wrecks your car. Exactly how long after they threw you out did the shooting begin? <laughs> what shooting? asked Bum. The shooting in the alley, you idiot, said Jones. Five minutes, half hour, how long? Correct. What's correct? asked Jones. What'd you say? Jones pinched the bridge of his nose. Damn it, bum, from the time when Chet McLaughlin was shot and when they threw you out of the restroom. Don't know, because the noise got loud. And the noise gets loud, said Trixie, sending spittle outward. Jones looped back. That's when bum gives the high sign. What does that mean? asked Franny. Plug in the earbuds. I get jiggy when the noise gets too loud. And why are you working in a bowling alley? asked Franny. You need to talk to Phillips, said Jones. You plugged in so you couldn't be questioned and say you never heard anything. Nothing. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Why? We already talked to Pinky Harris. Pinky and Bum go way back. <laughs> why am I not surprised? asked Jones, looking at Franny. Then he turned to Bum. Do yourself a favor, Bum. Get lost before Coco comes back. He'll kill you. Yeah, sure, Jones. You're really getting out of my skin, Bum, shouted Jones, loud enough for a few people at the bar to look back. And who was in that truck? You must know that. Franny pulled Jones onto the dance floor. Forget about him, Coach. It's not worth it. Whole thing makes no sense, Franny, said Jones as they started dancing. Why didn't he just tell me he talked to Pacheco? Because he wanted to tell his dumb story, said Franny. The faster song ended and the slower classic started. Franny pulled him closer. What Bum says, Jones smiled. Bum never said who took that key because he gave it to him. I don't want to hear that he was sleeping. I think he knows. He's diverting. You need to talk to Dom and Kevin. Right. 
Who knows if Bum told him half of what he just said to us? Plus, he's hiding something. Why was that truck chasing him, or was it? What's your side road theory, Coach? Asked Franny. My side road theory stinks, Franny. Chet's shooting may have been planned by Coco's father. Why would gangsters target Chet McLaughlin, Matthias? Jones slowly shook his head as they danced. Franny would be in jeopardy if he told her what he knew about the X-ray and Johnny leaving town. I don't think Bum is a part of this, said Franny. Exactly right, Francis. But he allowed a professional killer to slip into the Bolarama, and that guy had the key to the storage room downstairs because of Bum. Bum was in the restroom because he knew something was going down, and he didn't know what. What about Mark Pierre and the 22 slug on the wall? Fired nowhere near Chet McLaughlin. Diversion, said Jones. Just can't believe that the mechanic ordered that. Two shooters sends everybody looking down the rabbit hole, and nobody saw the hitman. Apparently not, but Pereira was seen at the Bolarama by Winky and at the hospital. If I were the mechanic, I wouldn't get Pereira involved with my operation. Somebody else got Pereira involved, maybe as a diversion. Paid him well. Pereira's a loser. He may have even been paid to go after Wanda. I have to check exactly when they linked up. Now you have a side road there. For Pereira, anyways, said Jones. Pereira and somebody else. Johnny? I don't know. The song ended and he held her hand as they waltzed over to the dart area. Jones picked up the red darts and gave the blue ones to Franny. Franny threw and missed the board and hit the cork wall. She began laughing with Jones. <laughs> Johnny Stefani is right in the center of the storm, Matthias, said Franny. Jones's dart ended in the outside rim. Jones nodded. Given what Coco told him on the way back from Boston, he was convinced now that something drew Johnny back to Prince William and Chet McLaughlin's knowledge of Jigsy Moran's murder. This time she hit the bullseye. Franny, wow! Said Jones, yawning. This has been a long day. I'm beat. Franny checked her watch. Almost midnight. Back to Hamilton? Back to Hamilton. They set down the darts and he took her hand. They skirted the pool tables and stepped toward the front entrance. Hey, Jonesy! Yelled Coco from behind. Where are you going? Jones, still holding Franny's hand, turned. Where am I going? I've reached my limit. Sure, sure. Thanks for coming to Boston with me this morning. Coat room girl with straight blonde hair handed Jones and Franny the coats. Let me know if you hear anything, bro said Coco. Jones stared at Club Max's open coat room window. You too, said Jones as they exited the club. Across the parking lot, a car engine struggled to start in the cold air. As they crossed the asphalt, Jones noticed Bum Bumpus behind the wheel in the open door of his station wagon. I told you not to buy that yo-yo gas, Bum, said Jones. Get on, he's a bullshit artist. That some kind of revelation? asked Franny. Jones noticed a two by four wood board propped behind Bum from the front bench seat wedged against the rear seat. With a screwdriver in hand, Bum crawled out and fiddled with something in the engine, producing sparks. Hey Bum, you almost hit Coco on Route 32, regardless of that red truck. Must have been somebody else, said Bum from under the hood. I saw the car go by, but I didn't see you, and the engine was cut. 
You didn't see me, wise guy, because I was indisposed. At 80 miles an hour, you moron. Hey, that's what Corky Corrigan used to call him. Where's Trixie? asked Franny. I told her to go hitch, answered Bum as he once again tried to start the car. It's 22 degrees, Bum, said Jones as the car engine caught and then kept sputtering. I can call Ralphie's towing, said Jones. I'm all set, Mississippi, yelled Bum. Bum raised his hand and he shut the door. Jones and Franny jumped back. The car rumbled toward the Club Max exit. So long, suckers. I just thought of something, Franny. Pereira on the promenade. That's what Winky said. We got our coats. The window was open in the Club Max coat room, just like the Bolarama. That's how Pereira got out. He dropped onto Washburn and then he was gone. Thias, you're always tuned in. Yes, Francis, I am. Jones's phone rang as he reached the Jeep. Matthias Jones. So formal. Jones opened the door for Franny. Aunt May, it's nice to hear your voice, said Jones. Let me help you in the Jeep, Franny. Oh, is Franny with you? I'll put you on speaker. Hello, Aunt May. If you're out on a date, I hope Matthias paid for it. He did, said Franny as she slid onto the front seat. Jones quickly moved around front and hurried to start the Jeep. I saw on the sports report that you demolished Hudson State. We did. One more game with Mac and we have a two-week break. That's not why I'm calling, as your dad used to say. I've read about the Bolarama shooting on the Prince William Gazette site. Phillips says investigating. It's one big mess, said Jones, starting the Jeep. Is the poor man still alive? He's clinging to life, Aunt May, and is heavily guarded. The officers seem tight-lipped. Well, I've found some additional things, said Jones, backing into the lot. Okay, Bill, she said. Dad would find this one hard to crack. Lots of moving parts is what it'd say. Well, I'm staying on it. Why don't you come back here, Aunt May, said Franny. Well, I am coming back for the wedding, she said as Jones prepared to turn on the road. The bum came sputtering by at high speed in the station wagon. Jackass! shouted Jones, jamming the brakes. Was it something I said? asked Aunt May. No, some yokel yokel idiot, said Jones. That doers guy? No, fortunately Arnie wasn't here tonight. I'll call you in a few days when you get settled. Good night, Franny. Don't let the bed bugs bite. Love you both. Love, Love you, you too. too, they said together. As Jones approached St. Bart's, the outside stone steeple was still lit by spotlights. She likes you, Francis. I hope she does move back here. Sure, we could find a place for her, said Jones. You have room, coach. She'd never go along with that. Aunt May was young once, too. As Franny leaned over and kissed his cheek, a bullet raced through the rear window and into the seat. You have got to be kidding! Get down, Franny, he ordered as he shifted and pushed down. Another bullet passed through the rear window and exited out the windshield. Jones spun the Jeep as he downshifted and skidded into St. Bart's rectory parking lot. He shut off the lights and rolled behind the long dumpster. On the road, a red truck stopped and then turned 180 degrees. It's him, the red truck! The truck spun around from the rectory onto Maple Street. You all right, Franny? Other than I'm going to upchuck the pizza and beer, I'm fine. Jones' phone rang. 
unlisted number. Franny leaned over. The voice was low and slurred. You got the warning shots, Jones. Just hope you and your girlfriend got the message. Yeah, I got the message, Johnny. The call ended instantly. Was that Johnny? Jones paused. I don't know. Maybe it was Pereira. But if it was Johnny, I never should have engaged a guy like him. Now what? Two things. We have Ralphie get the Jeep to his garage. What's the second thing? Father Gallagher is having house guests tonight. Johnny's back in town. Chapter 6. St. Bart's Rectory, Prince William, New Hampshire. January 11th, 1222 AM. Inside the well-heated rectory, an exhausted Jones and Franny slumped on the front room antique sofa, sipped on Brandy Alexander's and Bulbous snifters, and watched a film noir called I Love Trouble on Gallagher's widescreen monitor. The liquor relaxed Jones somewhat after the shooting. Gallagher kept looking out the bay window as they awaited Kevin Phillips' arrival. Are you all right, Franny? asked Jones. How many times are you going to ask her that, Matthias? asked Gallagher at the window. I think she's just fine. It had to be Pereira, said Jones. Johnny is just too high up. Obviously, it's somebody who knows you're looking into this, said Gallagher. Jim, whoever shot us is long gone. In the red truck, I might add. What if they try to finish the job? I don't mean to sound like Coco, but they're just trying to scare us. Well, they did that all right, said Franny. One little bump to the left or right, and one of us would have been hit. Jones stood. Again, to quote Coco, we're still alive, aren't we? I think you have Coco on the mind tonight, said Gallagher, sipping the drink. Three Prince William blue and white SUV cruisers with no flashing lights swung their headlights into the rectory parking lot. Oh, oh thank God. You okay, Fran? asked Jones. Will you stop? asked Gallagher. Jones hugged her. You going up to bed? Are you kidding? I want to see what Kevin has to say about this one. Gallagher opened the front door. Detective Phillips. Jones felt the cold air rush inside the rectory. Father, is everything okay over here? He glanced at the movie, which no one was watching, but provided a stabilizing presence. So, who did you annoy tonight, Matthias? I think there's a short list on this one, Kevin. Agreed. Vehicle? Red truck. Three shots, less than 100 yards up the road, approaching the church, said Jones. Bum Bumpus had been chased by a red pickup earlier tonight at the notch. That may mean something. Can we look at your Jeep? Sure. Phillips nodded at one of the cops, and two cops moved down the porch stairs toward the parking lot. The other guy remained stationed outside the front door. Just for the record, Mark Pereira doesn't own a red truck, said Phillips. We already checked that. Unless he used or stole it, said Franny. Right. As far as Johnny Stefani is concerned, he was last seen in the Escalade at the rental place in Revere, Massachusetts. Look, Kevin, we're relying on testimony from Bucky Driscoll about the guy with the scar. Well, we are checking out the leads. Phillips took out his phone. Nick, did you guys measure the windshield hole? Yeah, I understand it's going to be large. We're looking for a 22 caliber hole. Pereira, at the Prince William Medical is a problem, Kevin, said Jones. Right, said Phillips as he tightened the grip on his phone. You're kidding. Okay. Well, asked Jones as Franny and Gallagher waited. Phillips pushed a button on his phone. 
Hey Dom, I'm at St. Bart's Rectory right now. The windshield hole is a 22 caliber. They'll test it further, but it is a 22. What? Yeah, well, that cinches it. I totally agree. Well, you can't get very far at this point. Jones turned to Franny and Gallagher as Phillips hung up Pacheco's call. Pereira? asked Jones. Yep, and there's more. Dom is sending me a copy of Prince William Medical Surveillance Video. Pereira was in scrubs trying to get into the elevator. I think we've got our man. Jones pressed his lips. Maybe. What is it, Matthias? asked Phillips. Something about this whole thing bothers me. Something not making sense. Can I get you a drink, Kevin? asked Gallagher. We're all set, Father. I need a copy of that video, said Jones. I can't do that, but I can call you when it comes in. Okay, thanks. He turned to Gallagher as Phillips went out the front door. I'll take that drink, Jim. Jones had just come back inside. Both Franny and Gallagher were asleep upstairs. His phone rang as Ralphie's tow truck lights disappeared down the street. Coco's icon photo at his office at Club Max came up on the phone. Coco. I'm on my way over to Gallagher's. Why? My mother and Dulio had the scanner on while they were playing cribbage. Plus, Ralphie called me. You and Franny okay? Yeah. I'll be there in five minutes. It was more like three minutes when the vet, smoothly running, spun past the dumpster. Jones stepped onto the rectory's front porch as Coco, in his long leather coat, crossed onto the walk and hurried up the stairs. You keep late hours, bro. Pereira was in the basement of Prince William Medical. He was seen wearing blue scrubs in the lobby. Chico ordered the stairways guarded. Did he try to get upstairs, Jonesy? Yeah, but there was an officer in the elevator and personnel covering the stairs. And the cops think he shot Chet and was coming back to finish the job. Kevin led me to believe that, said Jones, and I have a 22 caliber hole in my windshield. Nah, what do you mean, nah? I'm telling you, my old man is behind this whole thing. Even a moron like Driscoll can recognize a scar straight back above the eye. And the fedora, that's my old man. He was in the men's room waiting with his buddy Clyde, looking for the mechanic before he could get a clear shot off at McLaughlin. You're not going to like this, but I already don't like this whole damn thing, Jonesy. I think your anger at your father is clouding your head. Oh, is that what you think, Sigmund Freud? Look, Coco, Pereira is on the tape at the hospital. Why is he there? Huh, you want my clouded head theory, Jonesy, do you? What's your theory? Pereira is obsessed with McLaughlin's daughter. He probably wanted to contact her. No, he's involved in the Chet shooting, or maybe not involved at all. Why are you defending this screwball, Jonesy? I'm not defending anyone. It just looks bad. Jones thought for a minute. You got your father and this guy Clyde orchestrating the shooting, which came from the perch behind the shoe racks. How do you explain that? I explain it, Jonesy, because Johnny Stefani, like everyone else, didn't know the mechanic was behind the shoe rack. Maybe, said Jones. The shot was professional, and you know it. Maybe my old man was making sure the job was done. To protect his past, said Jones. I ain't going there, Jonesy. There's an arrest warrant out for Pereira, Coco. Let's see how he responds to that. <laughs> Lane would love to indict Pereira and show that surveillance video in court. Coco stepped closer. Okay, Jonesy, what do you think happened at the Bolarama? 
I don't know at this point. Who shot at Franny and me? Tell me that. My best guess would be Clyde. You don't know that, Coco, said Jones. It was a 22. Either way, Jonesy, somebody don't want you nowhere near this case. Jones read the Gazette at the breakfast table with Franny and Gallagher. The press coverage, as with TV, was limited somehow by Don Pacheco. Jones could see the trade-off because Herbert Lane's name inundated the front-page article. Later, Gallagher received a call from Claire McLaughlin that Chet had squeezed her hand. Jones confirmed it with Pacheco. Now that doesn't mean that Chet will be up dancing a jig this afternoon, said Gallagher. I understand, said Jones as he stared out the window. What's the matter, Matthias? asked Franny. Jones slowly turned back. Word gets out that Chet's recovering. That could put his life in danger. I think you're right, said Gallagher. But before you read the paper, Pacheco would be a fool to let that information out. Thank God he has all those men at the Prince William Medical. You mean like Kip Bosco? asked Jones. That's the weak link. Decoy, added Gallagher. I'll let the ducks on the pond know that, Jim. Gallagher stood and pulled back his chair. I have to get ready for mass. Keep me informed. We will, said Jones. And be careful, said Gallagher, rolling his eyes, as if you ever listened to me about being careful. Gallagher headed out the kitchen door towards St. Bart's. Coco said he'd have somebody here by 7.30 to bring us back to Hamilton, Fran. He heard the horn beeping outside. That must be our ride now, said Jones, standing and finishing another glass of orange juice. As Franny brought the plates and glasses to the sink, Jones looked out the window. Bum Bumpus's battered beige station wagon was parked at the end of Gallagher's walk. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Vegas can't be choosers, Matthias. Why do I think this is going to be the ride into hell? You're just tired, coach. Jones pulled out his cell and called Coco, but the call went to voicemail. It's only 19 minutes to Hamilton, said Jones. What can happen in 19 minutes? The station wagon's engine continued sputtering. The car reeked from some unknown foul odor. Jones closed his eyes and then looked out the smeared window. Bum's hefty frame caused the station wagon to sag on the driver's side of the car. Jones sat on the passenger side of a dirty vinyl bench seat. Franny was behind him and back. She pointed at the two-by-four piece of pine jammed behind Bum into the rear seat and producing a denim of backseat vinyl. The wood, two-by-four, was the only thing preventing the seat from collapsing. Bum, you have to get that engine looked at. All right, he filled up at Yo-Yo, Mississippi. Again? Jones rubbed his tired eyes and then turned to Bum. Why would you go back there? Oh, it's okay. Arnie told me that the first fill-up sets the carburetor to burn the special fuel. I should have extra power in this machine by the afternoon. Arnie told you that? Asked Jones, looking over his shoulder. Franny slowly shook her head with her mouth open. If I were you, I'd go to another station. Jones looked at Franny, her eyes open wide. Nobody can beat Arnie's price, said Bum as he neared the cemetery before Route 32. Sure, water can be really cheap. Jones stretched and leaned against the window with his eyes closed, but the vibrating engine kept annoying him. Bum swung onto Route 32, causing the board to emit a cracking sound. Jones opened his eyes. Coco appeared on the phone screen. Coco? Where the hell are you, Jonesy? Julio had other things to do this morning. What do you mean? I mean you weren't at directory. 
Galaga's cleaning lady said you already left. Thanks for telling Uncle Julio. Wait a minute. Bum told me... Bum told me you said for him to pick us up. Whoa, Mississippi, said Bum. I never said that, Jonesy. The entire station wagon shuddered and Bum's seat race cracked. That's what he told us, said Jones. Don't worry about the wood, it always makes noise, said Bum. You in that shitbox now? Yeah, we're on 32. Put idiot boy on the phone, said Coco. Jones flipped on the speaker. You're on speaker. Hey, low IQ. What do you want? asked Bum. What I want is an explanation why you told Jonesy I said for you to pick him up. Just trying to save you the trip. Not me, Bozo. Uncle Julio. Oh, crap. I'll let him deal with you. Freddy mouthed the words. Oh, my God. What happened? Slow down, Bum, said Jones as Bum slid on the dirt shoulder. Anything happens to Jones, hang your Freddy, and you'll hang by the short ears. Got it? Franny stared at the board and then looked back at the slope behind her. Whatever you say, Coco, do I still have my job? No, you're all washed up, pal. Jonesy, call me when you get to Hamilton, if you survive driving with Evil Knievel. Once out of the Devonshire Hills and on level ground toward Hamilton, Jones turned to Bum. Let me ask you something, Bum. My life is an open book. Yeah, sure it is. Somebody got into that storage room downstairs with your key. How about the truth? Who'd you give the key to? Nobody. I told you I was sleeping. You're lying. You knew something was happening, but you didn't know what. Bum began whistling Camp Town Races. One of the 18-wheelers out of Prince William roared down Route 32 behind Bum's station wagon. Watch it, Bum. That truck has momentum. Oh, dear Lord, said Franny. That it is, that it is. Who got the key, bum? asked Jones. You think I was on the shooting team, don't you? Why did you use the word team? What do you know, bum? asked Jones as the station wagon shuddered. Think I can't fire a gun, Mississippi? The station wagon chugged past the apartments on the outskirts of town. I don't care whether you can or you can't. I want to know who had access to that storage room. Jones looked behind him as the mighty truck gained speed. Just pull off the road, Bum. Oh, let him try and play chicken with me. Slow down. Nobody's playing chicken, yelled Jones. He felt Franny grab his shoulder from the back seat. The 18-wheeler, now less than 20 feet from Bum's station wagon, produced a roar from its engine and a hiss from its brakes. Then the driver blew the air horn. Bum hit a rut in the asphalt. The station wagon abruptly ripped to the right and the 2x4 snapped. As Bum gripped the wheel and fought to stay on the road, the bench seat rotated back toward Franny. He scurried up the back seat as Bum now faced Jones at 70 miles an hour. Jones grabbed the wheel and Bum tumbled toward Jones. Then Jones pounded the brake with his left foot. The station wagon slid across one lawn in front of a brick house and then crashed through a stockade fence into another yard. Jones closed his eyes just for a moment. He turned to Franny who, although stunned, gave the thumbs-up sign. Bum just stared ahead as the 18-wheeler rumbled by, producing a Doppler effect as the boys abated to a town. You're a walking and living disaster, Bum. Bum blinked his eyes. Help me get the other board from the back. 
I'm not helping you do anything. You will if you want to get back to town. I'm not driving another inch in this car, said Jones as he opened the door. Franny pushed open the rear door. Jones took her hand and they walked away, back to the road. We never should have gotten in that death trap. I thought we were dead. Jones had already called George Strickland. You're chicken, you're chicken, yelled Bum as he straddled the driver's door as several people emerged from the brick house. Said Jones. I beg your pardon. Where are you? You at the poultry farm, Matthias? George was south of town. Bum Bumpus nearly wiped us out. I've been having trouble up there ever since Corrigan left. Seems as though the high schoolers are speeding their cars and cutting off the engine at the top of the notch to see how far they can roll. I don't care about that. George, Bumpus nearly killed us. His front seat was held in place by a 2x4 and his car is on the front lawn of that apartment complex outside of town. 2x4? You can't drive a car like that. Tell me about it. I'm assuming you need a ride. Wendell is at the landfill. He can be there in 10 minutes. We'll be walking at 32. You tell Bump we're impounding that car. Jones looked back several hundred yards. Impound it? You need to crush it. Let's talk about Johnny. A man who hasn't been around for years, Coco's father, is in the Bolarama when Chet McLaughlin is shot. Jones and Franny are later trailed by a red truck and shot at, ending up at Gallagher's for the night. What happens the next morning to Jones and Franny in Bum's car really did happen to me. The wood snapped and the seat moved sideways as I gripped the wheel. Somehow I'm still here. This is Robert P. Fitton, secure, bolted down in a factory manufactured seat. Rest in peace, Bum Bumpus. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.